I don't know what to do with my hands. I never speak without a guitar. So for those of you who are visiting for the first time, I apologize that you didn't get to hear Ben's witty repartee. But uh, I'll try to keep you entertained. I realize that uh, uh, one of the worst ways that we can um, try to teach anybody is through a lecture. Um, they say that that's like you retain about 10% of what somebody says in a lecture. And if you use audio video, uh, you're, you retain about 20%. Um, if you get down to where uh, people actually are physically doing the thing that they learned, then you retain, retain about 70%. But if you go back and reteach it, uh, you, you get about 90% retention. Um, I'm going to use a little, a little bit of audio video, so I've got 20% right away. And then if I can get you guys to maybe act out some of these things in your life, then we can shoot for maybe a 70, 75-ish percent. Okay, so yeah, I realize that I have a drinking problem. Uh, We'll get that out of the way. If you ever see me, I've always got this. Uh, And the good thing about when you turn 50 is you really don't care what people think anymore. And you just, you're going to drink your diet, Dr. Pepper, all day. So, And plus I have an endorsement from from the Circle K, and I have to have this on stage with me all the time. the word shift uh, means to move or cause to move from one place to another. And I want to talk today about uh, probably the most important shift in, in the history of the world, and that is when, uh, when God decided to shift uh, and move from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, from the Old Temple, from the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, where he resided, where the Spirit of God was uh, resided, into... The new covenant into the new temple, which is his church, which is us, which is our hearts. And um, to do that, I want to I want to talk a little bit about a couple of uh, terms that I use. Um, and if you've ever gotten into any kind of a, a, a theological uh, banter with me, you've probably heard me use these two terms. And the two terms are uh, lower nature and higher nature. And they're kind of what you would imagine. It's uh, flesh and spirit. And those are the two words that I always heard growing up in church um, was flesh and spirit. And whenever we would run into those in um, in scripture, I would imagine uh, flesh, which I don't like to think about because, you know, uh, I just think of like your skin or uh, your body um, and then spirit. Uh, and then, you know, in the in the in the church I grew up in, at least we didn't talk too much about the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it was a little bit creepy whenever we did talk about it, because. Uh, nobody knew how to talk about the Holy Spirit. So um, I like to term I like the two terms, lower nature and higher nature. And let me kind of get into that a little bit. Lower nature is uh, refers to everything that has to do with our physical body and our physical realm. It's how our body works. It's the coding of our DNA. It's uh, hunger and thirst and fear. It's uh, our reaction to fight or flight mechanism. If you guys have ever studied that, um, or how we respond to stimuli, stimuli like uh, serotonin or dopamine. Those are the big payoff uh, drains that neurotransmitters give you when uh, when something good happens or when you feel love. Those are all like uh, little payoff to ching, um, kind of like we're mice getting a little treat, you know, uh, that life gives us. Um, for instance, if you've ever uh, done something well when you were a little kid. Perhaps maybe you danced or sang or something and some adult came up to you and said, oh my goodness, you're amazing. You're so good at that. And you got these warm feelings. It was warm and fuzzy and you felt really, really good. Um, that's, that's a little treat that your brain just gave you in the form of dopamine. And so what happens is your brain loves patterns and it wants that again. 
It's like bacon. I love bacon. I'm going to do whatever I can to get bacon again. So you're going to dance and you're going to sing until you get the more, more bacon. Uh, and so what happens is a lot of times those behaviors will, uh, um, if you keep going down that road, will, will modify and kind of um, end up, that's kind of your lifestyle. That's my case anyway. You know, when I was a little kid, somebody said, oh, man, you play guitar really, really good. I love bacon. So I would practice my guitar until I got more of the dopamine, you know, and it kind of it kind of molds us into who we are. And for some people, that's that's a bad thing because certain addictions kind of hijack that system, like uh, gambling or alcoholism or drugs. They they take over that whole system, and then that's all you want to do, and then it, your your life is kind of ruined. Um, so anyway, the, the other thing that uh, your brain likes to do with you, and your lower nature likes to do, is create. Uh, create patterns for you, and it's good. Patterns are great because they uh, they make your life more efficient. Uh, patterns are comfortable. Uh, it, it's it's how we have survived up to this point. Uh, we've created uh, what's called muscle memory, which is um, if you uh, learn to do something over and over again, you uh, don't have to think about it again. It's it's actually the, it's actually called kinesthesia, and um, you do it all the time. You don't really realize it. Like if you get a new car, and when you first drive the new car, you're not familiar with where all the buttons are, where the radio is, uh, where the Bluetooth, whatever. And you're fiddling with stuff when you're trying to drive, and pretty soon you're kind of off the road until you figure out where those things are spatially. And the more you do that motion, the more you know where it is and you don't have to think about it. So now you can drive and put on your makeup and drink and talk on the phone and text while you're driving and everything. And you're sort of on the road. Uh, it happens all the time in sports. If you're a... a if you learn golf, um, you go to a golf lesson and they, they teach you to uh, stand a certain way, feet shoulder width apart, kind of bend your knees and keep your back straight and teach you about your grip and everything. And you have all these little steps that is involved in learning a proper golf swing. And if you do it right, you hit a great ball. But the problem is, is that you can you could practice, say, 50 hours doing that golf swing and become an adequate golfer. But they say to become a professional uh, at anything, it, it requires 10,000 hours. You've probably heard that study before. 10,000 hours to become a professional at anything. Um, so here's how muscle memory works. Uh, when I first started learning guitar, uh, my guitar teacher showed me how to play a G chord. And the G chord is uh, one finger on this fret and one finger on this string on this fret and one finger on this fret. And then you strum it and it sounds horrible. And your family has to listen to you play that G chord a lot. So what's happening in when you learn something is you see what it is that your body is supposed to do. So in my case, it was a little diagram of where to put my fingers. And I would look at it, and then your brain has to interpret that and translate it into physical motion. So my brain is translating and saying, okay, first finger here, this finger there, this finger there, and then this finger has to do this and strum it. And so you do that over and over and over again, but pretty soon your brain is like, you know what, I can see that you're going to do this a million times and it's driving me crazy, so I'm going to write a code that will physically be in your brain for the rest of your life. And so now when I see G, just the letter G, my fingers automatically go to it. I don't have to think about it. I can play with my eyes closed because I've done it for over 10,000 hours of playing a G chord and every other chord. So that's how it works. So not only uh, does it does it take out the middle part? It takes out the translation part, the, the interpretation part. It actually puts this physical thing in your brain that will be there forever. The problem is, what happens if you 
practice the wrong way to play or the wrong golf swing for 10,000 hours. That's physically there forever. You have a bad golf swing. I talked to a golf pro one time, and I said, what happens if you learn an incorrect golf swing and that becomes muscle memory? He said, oh, you're screwed. There's, there's no help for you. I was like, surely not. Uh, but believe it or not, there is a way to, to fix that. Um, it's a whole other sermon, but I'll tell you real quickly. Uh, I'll get to the punchline of that one. And it's basically, if you practice the correct way of doing something as much, or at least the amount of hours that requires it to become muscle memory, you build a new muscle memory, and you can start using that. But your old one is still the default. So if you get lazy, or you get uh, frustrated, or you're in front of a crowd, you'll probably go back to your bad golf swing. But it is possible to create a new one. So now the reason why am I talking about all of this muscle memory? We'll get into that in just a second. Okay, now, higher nature, uh, when, you, when you hear higher nature, you're probably thinking spirit. And I, I, I like that too, but uh, to me it's not just simply spirit. This is the place or the space that God built within us and in the church that can, can be inhabited by his Holy Spirit. That's where God lives in us, is, is this higher nature. My favorite uh, mathematician, um, I know it's weird, I have a favorite mathematician. Uh, my dad was a math professor, so I, I grew up around math for my whole life. But my favorite mathematician was Blaise Pascal. And he said that man, man was born with a God-shaped void. And I love the idea that there's this hole that you're born with that you can keep trying to stuff things in and fill it up and uh, it it will only be filled with God. Um, Blaise Pascal is not my favorite mathematician because of his amazing mesmerizing math theorems, but because he had a really good life story. It was really fun to read it. It, He was uh, he was involved. He was uh, he gambled and he was in, you know, without alcohol, drugs. Uh, women drinking, lost everything, and then he finds God. So it's really a good read. If you ever want to read a really good mathematician biography, I'd go with Blaise Pascal. Um, so anyway, so this is higher nature. This is where this is where God resides. This is the place where where God's set up as the new tabernacle. The new temple is this higher nature, this this spirit that we get to um, be part of. Um, okay, so. When, when we are first introduced in the Old Testament to uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham, this, it's about 1,900 years before Jesus shows up, before the prophecy of Jesus is fulfilled. So there's 1,900 years of God's people worshiping him through lower nature, because lower nature is the only way that they could, is through the law, all the rituals and the, the sacrifices, and there were so many things that they had to do um, that to, to worship, and it was, was really only, only lower nature. So imagine all the muscle memory that, that the Hebrews, that the Israelites built up in 1900 years. Um, and the problem with uh, when you have uh, these patterns that are so ingrained in you that were taught from uh, your your parents and grandparents and it's your culture, when anything new is introduced, uh, what happens is your fear, your fight or flight 
uh, is triggered. So, it's, for instance, if, if you're at church and somebody decides to, uh, you know, we're going to change everything the way we worship in here. We're going to um, we're going to go to contemporary music. And do you remember the? I don't know if you remember in the 90s when that happened and people were so up in arms and so outraged and so mad. And we want our music back and we want our church back. And this is not my church. Well, it's because it, it you mess with a pattern that was there that we grew up with. And it's kind of we can make those lower nature patterns kind of sacred. And if you mess with that, it, it triggers the fear. Uh, factor. So what I want to do is we're going to get into a scripture where, I, where we see the shift from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And it's one of my favorite scriptures, and I have a kind of a different take on it. Do you guys ever, do you ever remember those, uh, I think it's called like magic art or magic things where you, it's like 3D, where you look at like a kind of a bad picture, like a not a very good good art and but if you kind of cross your eyes a little bit and focus really hard like another bad art shows up in the background and you're like and you're like wow that's amazing and so you just like just got blown away by some okay art you know well uh that's kind of what i see when i see this scripture i'm reading from uh john 12 uh chapter 12 and we're going to start with verse 1 i read out of the amplified bible so it, I might have some extra things in here. But I like how it, it says this. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany where Lazarus was. Um, and it, this, this same story shows up in uh, two other Gospels and has some different, different uh, facts that I like to pull from. Um, it was actually the, the, the dinner was at Simon the leper's house, but Lazarus and his sisters were actually there. So... Um, so where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. So they gave a supper for him there. Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound, a whole pound, of very expensive perfume. Uh, and the kind of perfume was pure nard. You can remember pure nard. Um, sounds like a metal band or something. Um, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And some of the other accounts in the other Gospels, it says that uh, she poured it on his head. And some say he poured it on his feet. Um, I think that since she poured a whole pound, she probably did his head and his feet. And different authors probably remembered different things. Somebody probably was like, that's weird that she poured it on his feet. And somebody was like, that's weird that she poured it all over his hair. And how is he going to get that out of his hair? So... That's the different accounts, but I, I just kind of think that she poured it all over everything. Uh, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor or he had never cared about them, but because he was a thief and since he had the money box, the serving, he was serving as the treasure for the 12 disciples. He used to pilfer what was put into it. He was an embezzler. That's, a, that's amazing. So Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep the rest of it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So I'm going to show you a picture. This is now, granted, this is not a great picture, but it's the only picture that I could find that kind of showed the whole thing. And it looks like it's like from the 90s with some like, I don't know what kind of color they use. So what I want to do is I want to think about this uh, this picture 
as a play. And we're going to do kind of an analysis of a scene here. And there's four main characters at play. There is Judas. There's Mary. There is the alabaster jar, which held the nard. And then the other character uh, is the perfume. I know that Jesus seems like he'd be the character, but but we're for our, our benefit here. And now, granted, now I've not heard this uh, anywhere else. And just full disclosure, um, this is just my take on it. This is my magic uh, art view of it. Um, and you might listen to this and think it's some kind of crackpot uh, cockamamie um, conspiracy theory or something. But I like to think of it like this in that. Uh, let's go to the one with Judas. Let's highlight Judas. I know, right? He looks old. I always thought of him as younger. But this artist's interpretation is Judas with a white beard. And he's telling everybody else, he's like, why doesn't everybody, uh, uh, why isn't everybody mad about this? Because she could have sold this. And it, it would have been like a year's wages worth of perfume. This is like very, very expensive perfume. And she just blew it and we could have sold it and helped the poor. So Judas is actually playing the part of Satan, and he, resent, he represents Satan's desires and consequently the, the desires of the chief priests and religious leaders to resist the change and shift that was coming to the law of grace. Now, remember, when change happens, you feel threatened and you feel afraid, and this is what was going on uh, with, the, with the chief leaders. They, they were feeling threatened by Jesus because it was, it was a big change. And um, so Judas is that voice of Satan where he's trying to bring us back to the laws of the lower nature. He always wants to drag us back to the patterns of the lower nature. And for him, it was really about greed, and it didn't have really anything to do with the kingdom, but it had to do with, um, with being greedy. Uh, Mary is, is playing the part of God. Let's highlight Mary. And, God's, uh, and represents God's true intentions and his incredible continuity of his divine plan that he's had since the beginning of time um and the reason i i i'm portraying her as god is basically she's the one that had to anoint jesus she's the one that had to break the alabaster jar and the the uh, let's go to the alabaster jar and look at that real quick i i'm not familiar with alabaster i, I don't know where you find it but apparently it was something very nice and rare back then. It's a kind of a precious stone that they created this jar out of. Now, if you look at it, it's broken. And so the the alabaster jar represents, uh, it's actually two, it's playing two different characters. One, it's the, um, it's the temple, it's the tabernacle where God's spirit resided back behind the veil, back in the Holy of Holies, back in the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's Spirit lived. And so this alabaster jar is going is, is to play the part of the, uh, the tabernacle. And it also plays the part of Jesus because Jesus is now the new uh, conduit of the Holy Spirit. And he had to be broken. So both had to be broken. And the old law had to be changed. And, and so the if you read when on Jesus' last breath on the cross, it said that there was an earthquake and the, te- and the temple fell apart and the veil was torn. That's the broken alabaster jar. But if it didn't break, then let's go to the pure nard, the perfume. Um, this, is, this is playing the part of the Holy Spirit. 
This is God's sweet spirit. Now, here's the thing about nard. It, I'm trying to think what it... I, I smelled it one time. It's kind of pungent. And the first thing I remembered was when, when I was uh, leading worship in junior high camps, uh, which I don't recommend unless you're like 20-something years old, but... Um, and they always put me in like the cabin with the boys. And, and the cabin that I was in was back in the woods and there wasn't any air conditioning and it was kind of swampy and like always mildewy. And boys had just, they were, they were funky at that age, like 13, 14, 15. There's just a smell that is rough about that age. They don't, they don't quite understand about showering. And, um, but it, at that time period, there was a new cologne called Drakkar. I don't know if you remember Dakar, but it's kind of a pungent, strong thing. And these boys had discovered girls at the same time that they were kind of funky smelling. And then they also discovered Dakar. And they thought, well, if a little is good, a lot is great. And so that cabin smelled like like sweaty clothes and socks and mildew and Dakar. And it was and I couldn't even sleep. My, my nose burned. Uh, and nard is kind of like that. Now, what they would use nard for back in, in the day uh, that the story is, is um, when there were festivals, and at this, actually at this time the, the, the Passover was, was one week away. So this is really, I call this the shortest prophecy in the Bible because what's happening here in this little scene that we're analyzing is going to happen in one week. So it's like a, the shortest, uh, shortest possible prophecy. So... Uh, anyway, so what they would use Nard for was when festivals were, were happening, uh, families would gather to the city that the festival was going to happen. So you'd have lots of guests. If you happen to live in that city, that would be uh, that would be bad because you'd have to really clean house and make room for all of your your guests. And they would probably be there for about a month. And it was hot and muggy, and it probably was a situation where you would have to bring out the Nard. It's like Febreze, like you know Febreze for the family, and you're going to Febreze down the place. Now the other thing they used Nard for was to anoint royalty when they would want to parade royalty in front of a crowd, down like, down like a parade route or something, and just introduce this is the new king or this is the new prince or this is the new princess. And they would use this because when they would walk through the crowd, everybody could smell it. It was a very expensive perfume, and only royalty would use it. So I love the fact that she put this nard on him, and it's like an essential oil. So it gets, it gets into your pores, it gets into your skin, and it's there. So chances are that a week later, as Jesus is carrying his cross down, down the street, people can still smell this anointed royalty coming down the street. You might have even been able to, to still smell him uh, in the, in the, um, on the cross. Um, but I love that. And the other thing that I like is that she, she broke... The alabaster jar. She broke her perfume bottle. So once you break it, you're going to use all of it. There's no like just using a little bit and we'll we'll come back and, and use it some more and spare it out because it's open and it's going to evaporate. And so she pours all of it out. And this is what God does. He breaks the temple and he releases all of his spirit to us. And he, we get to benefit on being on this side of the covenant. Um, I remember a friend of mine asked me, he said, what, what side of the covenant do you feel like you're on? And I was like, well, I'm, I, I believe in the new covenant. You know, I believe in this new thing. And the problem was is that I realized that I kind of lived a lot of my life uh, fulfilling uh, 
disciplines and rituals and trying to make sure that I'm in my Bible a lot and that I pray a certain amount of times and that I keep up appearances and I'm a good dad and da, 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 and it goes on and on. I was like, wow, that really sounds like old covenant and that I'm not really embracing this finished work on the cross. And so I realized that a lot of what I do is is old old covenant stuff. And the problem with that is that and I'll call, I'll call these rituals and, and lower nature, I'll call them works. These works that we do, these disciplines that we do, will never lead to falling in love with Christ, being in love with God. Being in love with God has to come first. When, when uh, the young man asked Jesus, what's the, what's the, the most important law? And Jesus said, uh, to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to put these two categories in two different categories. One is is to be in love with God. The second is works, because to love your neighbor as yourself, those are all the works that we do out of out of our life. So, but it, he did it in that order because it has to come in that order. It has to be be in love with God, and out of that love relationship, that right relationship. And out of being living in that higher nature and not letting lower nature rule us, that those works can come out through our lower nature. It's a weird cycle, but sometimes it's easy for us to get it flipped around. I want to show you a couple of uh, pyramids uh, of law. Um, the fir- well, first of all, before we, uh, before we do that, um, when us Gentiles who didn't grow up with co- uh, Jewish culture think about the commandments and think about the law, we tend to think of uh, this picture of Charlton Heston coming down with the big stone thing. This, this is the law that we think of, right? But if, you are, if, if you're a Jew and you grew up uh, hearing the law, there's also the law of Moses, which is actually 613 laws. And these are the weird laws that, that you read about, like uh, if your leather has mold on it, then you must take it to the outskirts of the city and leave it there for 30 days until it breathes. And they were like, what does this have to do with Jesus? I have no idea. Because these were all the, the lower nature laws that, that, that Moses was writing to, to create this rituals um, and traditions. And, um, and you could only... You could only access God, and God could only identify with you through these laws. It's really interesting because when I read through Old Testament uh, stories, and I would read these things of like, like you know, Moses came down from the mountain, and there was a certain amount of people there that were worshiping Baal, and so God decided, uh, in His wrath and, and anger, opened the ground, and and men, women and children and, and livestock were were destroyed. You know, I was like, how can God do this to his people? Well, it's because God cannot identify with someone if they are not within his law. That's the only connection that they could have was through the law. They had to be in the law. We can only connect through Christ, uh, through God, through Christ. That is the fulfilled law. So it's the same thing. What's really cool is um, on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, everybody see uh, late Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay. All right. So you remember the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there was very specific uh, instructions on how to make this. And on the outside of the box, on the outside of the Ark of the Covenant, is written all 613 of laws, uh, the laws of Moses. On the inside is where the Ten Commandments are. What's really cool is uh, when Jesus died on the cross, those 613 laws were fulfilled. And... The ones remaining that we get to follow and be and and uh, and 
and it's a living law is the Ten Commandments. Um, but like I said, we still try to like lead up to the covenant with works, and we try to lead up to love with with doing these commandments. But the commandments have to flow out of the right relationship with God. Um, I heard a, a quote. Martin Luther said, The first love is drunken, and when the intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage love. And I love seeing these young couples getting married, and uh, they, they just are living in this, you know, this bubble of being in love. And what's amazing is that the, the covenant is the thing that has to be the strong part of the relationship because the love is going to is going to it's fickle it's going to be it's going to fade in and out depending on the circumstances it's all circumstantial you know when the when the kids are overwhelming or you don't get enough sleep or your your husband in my case does like one too many little things to irritate you you know that 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 breaks out into a fight but what's really cool is that the covenant sustains the love the love will never sustain the covenant so Amy and I, in our marriage, we know we're not going anywhere because we made a covenant. And that's, that's solid. That's good. So whether or not we feel uh, on cloud nine that day or not, it's, it's okay because we've got this covenant. And that's where God is with us. And he, he keeps, us, um, keeps us close because he's got this covenant that will that'll never change. Let's look at these two uh, pyramids. Uh, the first one is the old covenant law. This is the pyramid of how you would get to God. You would have to start with the law and make sure you follow all those things. And then through the law, uh, you're exercising through your lower nature, through your physical uh, world, rituals. There has to be sacrifices. And before you get to God, you have to go do all these things through uh, priests. Um, and then you can connect with God. Now, when Jesus comes and, um, and, and the shift from Old Covenant to New Covenant and the shift from Old tabernacle to new tabernacle us uh it gets flipped upside down and now we start with the holy spirit and jesus is our priest and that leads us into worship worship always has to flow out of of this beginning thing where we are in in higher nature and um then out of that comes tithes and offerings it's really interesting uh, how many people i know that are sort of we, I always call them like C and E Christians. They're the ones that show up on Christmas and Easter, and you know they always want to make sure they give their tithe and offering, and and that's kind of like I'm going to check that off my list. We've all got like these lists. Well, those are those patterns, and that's where you know Judas or Satan is is whispering like, why, why don't we do this? Because this is this is what you do, and he was always trying to drag us back into the pattern, drag us back into the lower nature. Um, so then, out of the tithe and offering, uh, eventually comes our works and deeds, and it has to be in that order. Um, this is something that, that uh, has been kind of life-changing for me in the last like probably four or five years uh, where I've been thinking in terms of higher nature and lower nature. And I, by no means, have been living in higher nature. I still have plenty of lower nature things that I, I get stuck in and keep dragging me down but the really cool thing is is that i get to tell lower nature that it's not the boss you know it's not in charge and what's sad is that people that don't know christ that that have that that don't understand that that god moved out of the tabernacle and moved into us 
they don't have a connection with him. They're living their whole life in lower nature. A series of stimuluses and responses and payoffs and fear and fight or flight or whatever. And they don't get to get to that real deep joy part that is, is forever. And it's, it doesn't, it's not dependent on fickle things and it's always there and that love is always there. Um, so as we end tonight, or I mean this morning, um, I want you to think about uh, that shift from um, from old covenant to new covenant, and, so, and I I had to shift. We all have to shift when we when we meet that uh, when we when we get to meet Christ for the first time. And so, if you haven't uh, made that covenant with Christ or met Christ, or uh, if you're interested in talking about it, uh, we'll have elders and we'll all all the leaders will be hanging out. And we'd love to talk to you. And so, um, let's pray. Dear Lord, I, uh, I'm so thankful that you created this intricate and fantastic and uh, amazing way that we could be in this right relationship with you and that you created this, uh, this space for us, uh, this place that you would like to connect with us. And I know that you've been running after your bride forever. And, and we just want to respond by uh, constantly going to this covenant and and being in love with you, so that uh, we're in the right um, right pattern. So we thank you in Jesus' name. I pray, Amen.